Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live at one. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and it's time for tech. And once again, we are lucky enough to be joined by that story denizen of the tech deep, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, who is technical editor at motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, Matt. It's fantastic to be here again and uh, looking forward to diving into some more tech. Yes, I think our winter break will offer us multiple opportunities to dig deep into the tiniest and yet somehow most important details. But first, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Well, it looks like if we just got rid of Verstappen, we'd have had a real interesting second half of the season. But wishes and Porsches and all that. So instead, here we are to talk about what really matters, the cars. As always, it is the most important part, or at least that's what I think it is. Or maybe it's the tyres. Well, I think it was probably Williams that tried to make the point very clearly that it was their car and not necessarily their driver that was the most important part of the championship. Yeah, most certainly. But uh, I, I do want to digress at first and talk a little bit about the rules. Um, they have been very popular, these rules. We've seen more overtakes. We've seen better wheel-to-wheel racing. I think that's hard to argue with. And in terms of what they set out to do, which was to improve the ability of the cars to follow and therefore to fight, well, you know, we just watched a one-stop versus a two-stop that was under two seconds apart over an entire race distance. So also thank you, Pirelli, for that. So what could we possibly not like so much about these rules? Because you in a WhatsApp chat with me yesterday had still some reservations. Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, the waters are a little muddy for me because I've never really been a fan of this particular set of rules in the way in which they've been framed uh, going into this regulation set. Uh, 
I think that, as you say, there's mega plus points to what we've seen so far. And that is the fact that you can race much closer to one another. Um, we've seen more overtaking. And after all, those are the things that essentially the rules were set out to, to deal with. However, I think that there's still some ways to go in, in order to improve the racing from front to back. The field spread is too large. The weight of the cars are too much. Um, I think that the, there's a, you mentioned Pirelli. And although Pirelli have done a fantastic job with what they have at their disposal, I still think there's some questions to be asked about the way in which that the tyres operate or indeed in the way in which that the sporting regulations are written in order to encourage better strategy amongst all of the teams. So although this is a really good starting point for uh, this particular regulation set, I think we should also be cautious of being too optimistic about the direction that we're going to head in over the course of the next few years, because obviously these are going to be in place for you know a good number of years now, uh, and and I think one of the other things that we have to re- really be uh, mindful of is that we've seen a very different way in which that the teams have developed this year because of the way that the cost cap, the resource restrictions, the amount of races that we've got, and everything else in terms of development all rub up against one another. So I think we really do need to think about those things going further forward. Uh, over the next few years as well. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because um, earlier uh, in the week and in the Slack chat, or last week, I suppose that would be really now, uh, one of one of our listeners asked the, the very simple question, if we went back to like the tobacco money era, would we have seen a B-spec Mercedes at summer break? And so I will start out our cars questions with, with posing that to you and and asking well if that's the case why didn't we see one this time i think we possibly could have seen a b-spec version the mercedes for argument's sake uh in as very much as that we saw b-spec cars in many ways from some of the other teams you've got to think about aston martin williams uh and indeed mercedes to some extent also bought huge updates when we got to silverstone so there was areas within the development cycle this year where we've seen really significant progress in terms of what's being bought to the car and trying to get back into the the, the playing area really with with what they have at their disposal um but yeah the, the obvious answer is if we we were back in the tobacco era there was no cost cap we would simply have seen teams bringing much larger parts even you know b-spec cars uh, to to uh, the races to try to overcome some of the issues that have been created by misunderstanding or misinterpreting the way in which these rules have been written um, because they are a massive change compared to where we've been in the past and I think a lot of teams will be making significant changes going into 23 in order to uh, rectify some of the issues that they created for themselves this season. Right. I mean, to me, what I look at is if for a moment, and when I say we get rid of Max Verstappen, I mean literally. Just X him and his points out of the championship. If you look at Mercedes and Ferrari, they were going into the last race 19 points apart. And I would, I would, for argument's sake, to stand up for these regulations a little bit more in terms of the field spread. I know uh, in terms of seconds on track, we'd like to see the likes of McLaren and Alpine a bit closer. But if I'm looking at points, I find it hard with um, a known seven retirements from Alpine and which would be, what, 30%? And then if you look at perhaps McLaren, um, comparing Ricardo's performance to Norris's performance, 
I think 30% is a minimum of what they missed. I think from a point point of view across a whole season, I, I think we may have actually seen some improvement. Do you think then that it's possible under this regulation set for on-track time between the sharp end of the midfield and the back end of the front of the field? Do you see that coming down as we get further into this regulation set? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to consider here is the resource restriction, i.e. the the percentage availability of wind tunnel and CFD time uh, will alter based on your championship position. Now, obviously, that has been in place now for, for a couple of seasons, but what the idea of that was was to try to create some kind of parity from the front of the grid to the rear of the grid. Now, obviously, with what happened with Red Bull, uh, with you know their issues in the cost cap, they are going to have a, a major penalty uh, heading their way going into next season on top of uh, the uh, resource restriction they're already in place of. So I, I do think that there will be a, a closing up of the, the front to rear, uh, but uh, it, it's always going to be um, stifled by uh, who can actually spend the most wisely. You know, the, the best teams will always be the best teams in, in so many ways because they're just more efficient with the way in which that they operate their resources. Uh, I think if we go back to the start of the season and the, the comments that Bonotto made uh, from Ferrari basically suggesting that they couldn't understand how Red Bull uh, could be uh, you know, where they were, uh, we, we now found out that they were obviously over the cost cap. But it wasn't significant, in my opinion. You know, Not to the point as to which uh, Ferrari were insinuating that they were so far beyond the cost cap, it was unreasonable. Uh, so. I think it just comes down to efficiency levels as well back at the factory uh, as much as anything else in terms of development. Uh, but this year has been very interesting, in my opinion, in terms of the way in which the teams have decided to go about their business, not only from a lifing point of view on parts, but also in terms of how they've developed throughout the course of the season, uh, because it has been a little bit different in some ways to, to what we've had in the past. Okay. So before we move on to talk about specific teams, your biggest gripe here was you and now. To be fair, this does not make your life easy. But you were telling me that there were races where you saw no developments brought at all. We've not seen that before. No, I mean, there was one race this season, um, kind of anticipated as much as uh, when you've got so many races in a calendar and the, the, there's not really much left on the table other than fighting for scraps in terms of points because the championship is already kind of over. Um, you kind of anticipate that, some teams might have turned the tap off a little bit early. Uh, but Brazil this season, uh, we had no updates whatsoever from any team on the grid. Now, I think that's actually unheard of. I can't remember a season, at least whilst I've been covering the sport, where there has been nothing from any team. Uh, so that kind of speaks about both the cost cap, the resource restriction, and also the quantity of races that we have to get through uh, in a calendar. Yeah, and I, I do agree with you. Like having had this, having had that pointed out, it, it's going to be problematic because we've got more races next season. Although I think maybe we're already back to twenty three because I think China is mostly on the way out at this point. But it's it's an issue if updates stop appearing at races, even if they're just minor twiddles here and there, because suddenly that stops. That's not just tobacco money, Formula One. That's the Formula One that has sort of always been, as long as most of us have been on the planet, yeah? As I say, I mean, I can't remember a time where, where we haven't had a race 
where at least one team hasn't bought something, even at the end of the season, you know, because they're looking at things for the following season, which is what we had in Abu Dhabi. A couple of teams bought updates that they were preparing things for 2023, that being Ferrari and McLaren. And they were the only ones to run updates uh, during the course of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix weekend. Uh, they didn't race those parts, but they were just looking into ideas, you know, fleshing things out in the real world. And I think that's one of the, the main things that we'll talk about perhaps in the development stream this uh, as we go through the cars is the way in which that uh, teams have had to be a bit more proactive at the track uh, rather than just trusting CFD and wind tunnel data because, you know, these are very different types of uh, regulations compared to what we've had in the past and they've kind of had to reset some of their tools in order to cope with the issues they've come across. Right, and and this would then... As we get into talking about the teams, I have always felt like one of the biggest problems for the FIA to overcome in terms of reducing the field spread is the fact that the teams that we think of as being the big teams, which would be Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes, have had for more than a decade, in Ferrari's case, forever, literally, the ability to amass expensive tools that weren't always available to the other teams that had less money to spend, and they are still sitting on that huge heap of resource and experience and drawers stuffed full of things that have been tested that can simply be gone back to and looked at. And other teams, smaller teams, haven't had that capacity. So for a lot of it, is it not just going to be the case of waiting for this testing restriction and the parity that the FIA is trying now to enforce, it's going to have a lot of catching up to do before we can really judge whether or not it's effective. Yeah, I mean, I think in a regulation set, you could really argue that you shouldn't really tamper with things too much until you get to the third season, uh, which is at the point at which you know teams have really converged on many of the main ideas within that regulation set. Uh, if you look back historically, unfortunately, Formula One has had a a, a really bad way of coping with regulation changes in as much as that it gets a very knee-jerk reaction to something and it try, tries to change things almost instantaneously. We had that in 2009 uh, when we, we introduced the, the vanilla regulations. Uh, immediately there was some discourse regarding tr- uh, double-deck diffusers and some of the other things that were going on there. Uh, and, you know, as much as uh, Formula One made big strides, in my opinion, in 2009, uh, they they walked back many of those things when they got to 2014. And then again in 2014, when things didn't quite go the way because of the hybrid regulations being introduced, we end up with a knee-jerk reaction for 2017 and again 2019. So hopefully the FIA and Formula One management have learned from those mistakes and they will be cautious in their, how they approach further changes over the next few years. Uh, we ha- we are getting some very minor changes for, for next season, but I think those really are things that uh, needed to be put in place before development in those areas become uh, very, very complicated very, very quickly. And obviously we want to try and stop those things from happening. That would be the Aston rear wing you're talking about? And the Mercedes front wing as well, yeah. Yeah. And a few a few bits on the edge of the floor. There's, there's a few changes for 23 uh, that will have an impact in terms of performance uh, and it has meant that towards the end of the season, you've probably seen teams stepping away from uh, a direction of development that might otherwise have headed towards had those uh, not already been you know, outlawed by 
the FYI. Okay, so real quick then, before we uh, finally get into the teams, and I promise we will get into the teams in just a second, one of the most exciting things about this season is we saw three sort of completely different looking cars, all of which seem to have sort of different aerodynamic concepts. Could you just take a moment and sort of take Red Bull and Ferrari and Mercedes? And I know some of the midfields had their own approach as well, but let's just start with the top three and outline sort of the differences and how you see them, their concepts working, where they expected to gain lap time and and how they expected to be competitive in this regulation. Okay, so the one team that most seem to have converged towards throughout the course of the season is the the Red Bull style side pod. And I think that's because it's the most benign version of what of what we're seeing. And the reason I mentioned the side pods and engine cover is because those are the areas that perhaps have the most uh, authority in terms of being able to to, to make uh, very different designs. The rest of the car is, uh, you can make a difference, but it, it's not as large. It's not as visceral uh, as you get with the side pods and the engine cover. So obviously with uh, Red Bull, we've got the uh, very forward uh, open top uh, inlet of of the side pod we have a very deep undercut and then we have what's called a ramped side pod solution so the ramp goes down to the rear of the of the car and obviously you're using the airflow to to try and get to the to the airflow into the right areas at the rear of the car uh then we move into what i would call a high-waisted uh in-wash side pod which is what we got from ferrari and a couple of the other teams um a couple of those teams did move on towards the Red Bull style side pod. But what we do know is that from an efficiency point of view, the Ferrari solution is quite high. Uh, you know, it, it, it does a good job. However, you have to do a lot of work with the sculpting of that side pod to be able to get that, that efficiency back. Um, so it's a very complex design that we saw on the Ferrari. We didn't see many people head towards that design, albeit Alpine had a sort of, half Red Bull, half Ferrari style side pod, uh, which is is probably one of the more interesting solutions that uh, we found on the grid ch- during the, the middle of the season. And then obviously you've got the, the, the standalone solution, the zero pod of, of the Mercedes, which I, I get what they were looking at doing there, uh, very much in line with what we've had in the past, um, over the past you know sort of decade, in as much as that you want to get as much of the floor open as possible you you want to get the the air into the coke bottle region as quickly as possible um you know they, they were in my opinion they were trying to influence things in a way in which they was a known concept to them uh from previous regulation sets uh, and obviously they've made it work throughout the course of the season whether it's still at the level that they want it to be moving into 23 or whether they can find more performance from something else we have to wait to see uh, but those are the three major solutions that were, you know, available on the grid. Uh, but most of the teams move more towards what I would consider a Red Bull style side pod as the season unfolded. And I think that's just purely down to the fact that it w- was a much more benign uh, solution that could then be, you know, sort of tuned to your requirements. Okay, so let's start then with Red Bull. If I was going to give Red Bull a grade. I'd have to give them an A, except for they stole someone's lunch money and got sent to detention. So, you know, you you can't ignore that. Um, but what interests me most is is their journey, especially on managing their tires and managing their weight. So what did we see? What how did they achieve that? Because at the start of the season, they were not particularly great 
on their tires. They struggled a lot. What changed? And specifically in the second half, what what did you see them bringing? And, and what do you see them tuning? Because I'm assuming that their development for 23 is going to be much more of an evolution of what we're seeing right now and not something brand spanking new. Yeah, I mean, the the thing for 23, you have to think in terms of broad strokes, is that we've already seen a lot of solutions throughout the course of 22, more than we anticipated would even be possible. Um, just looking at the, the way the regulations were set out, I think everybody was uh, appreciative of having cars that look very different to one another when we thought that there might be a lot of copy and paste out there. So I think that we have achieved something that already that we weren't anticipating. In terms of Red Bull, uh, as you mentioned, I think bringing the weight down of the car really helped them be able to place the weight in in areas of the car that was more advantageous to the setup, um, especially getting the front axle being able to turn in. Because as we know, Max does not like an understeery car. And I think that's what they were really struggling with in the first part of the season is that they just couldn't get the front end to, to bite as much as that they really wanted to. Um, in terms of development throughout the course of the season, obviously they did well with the underfloor side of the, the design. Um, they were quick out of the box there, but they made some significant gains throughout the course of the season on that. Um, a lot of which is is hidden. And, I, and again, this is one of the things that unfortunately... Um, on the sidelines, most people won't appreciate what's going on underneath the car. And that is a big quantity of the performance that we're gaining with this particular set of cars. Obviously, the diffuser and the floor has always been pretty uh, important in Formula One, but it has a much, much larger role in, in providing the downforce now compared to front and rear wings. But I'll, I'll get onto that a little later. Um, but I do think that the way in which Red Bull operated is, is that they, they front loaded their season. They knew that they needed to spend more of their resources at the start tackling fires that they, they'd created, and they needed to put those fires out and deal with them as they went. So they'd done a lot of firefighting in the first half of the season and then made really good improvements to things like cooling. Um, uh, as you say, tyre management was a critical factor for them uh, as they went throughout the course of the season. Um, I think they made some improvements on the power unit as well in terms of being able to to get the best from it um, based upon you know their, their current arrangement, uh, whether it be high, low or medium downforce. So, you know, the points prove that they are the best team on the grid. And I think that they did the best job out there thoroughly compared to everybody else. Uh, and, and other teams have simply proved that by the, the conceptual movement of, of the, the aerodynamic side of things towards the, the Red Bull concept. Yeah, well, one of the things that I, I liked very much, and, and I noticed it because this is a, an approach taken by Alpine as well, and some of the other teams, is they did seem to understand straight away that it was a bigger season-long advantage to have a very high top end on the car, rather than going for maximum downforce, which had generally been, the I think, the trend would be to go for a maximum downforce and then and then trim it out under the previous regulation set. They immediately realized their car would be much racier and their drivers would have a better chance at being able to capture more draggy cars going into the braking zones at the end of DRS. Yeah, I mean, what, what I do find interesting about Red Bull this season is their lack of development when it comes to uh, front and rear wing. Um, 
they, they have had some development. Like they've moved the the front wing end plate canard um, at, at one point. Uh, they, they've obviously optimised the the flaps on the on the front wing to to cater for the downforce level that they're at. But they've they've not spent a huge amount of their resource on designing rear wings for different circuits, which again is something that we used to see in the past. Um, you know, they they really probably only had four rear wing specifications. And what I mentioned in the middle of the season uh, review on the tech side was the the beam wing design that Red Bull came up with is quite interesting because obviously they had that biplane uh, beam wing design and only Alpine have copied that um, throughout the course of the season. But what that does is an interesting uh, setup change relative to the rear wing. You know, it allows them to to play around with things because they they went down to single element up at certain points when they didn't, you know, when they wanted to reduce the the total amount of drag. Places like uh, Belgium, Baku, and um, Monza, we we saw them just with a single element beam wing. So I think that they adapted really well in terms of setup, um, but they didn't have a huge suite of parts to work with, unlike some of the other teams that have continued in more of a traditional route and continue to to find developments from front and rear wings throughout the course of the season as well. Okay, so I'm going to ask real quick, uh, because it became such a topic in the last few races, the discrepancy between Verstappen and Perez. Particularly, you know, uh, we saw it uh, in Brazil, but we saw it again in, in Abu Dhabi. Is it just Perez not being able to get his head around it? Because I know that Perez purposefully ran a, a, a different specification car for some time because he liked it better, even though Red Bull thought that it cost him time. So you you track what they put on the cars closely. Are they all running exactly the same car? And if not, does that give us any ideas as to what's going on um, uh, on Perez's side of the graph? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
I think it just comes down to comfort level at the end of the day. There's always going to be a difference between one side of the garage and the other. And at certain tracks, it's exposed by that driver preferring a certain type of setup, trying to do certain things with tyres. Um, if we look at Abu Dhabi, because that's where we were last, um, there were stages throughout FP2 where Perez did try a high downforce rear wing compared to what they actually ran during the race. So he was looking at different ways to try to, to find that comfort level. Um, there are other instances on other teams where that, that's been the case and other team team members have, have actually run different uh, setups to one another. But by and large, I think Red Bull sort of converge on on a single aerodynamic setup uh, and, and run with it. But there has been times where, as you say, they've run different floors because uh, Perez has felt more comfortable with that particular floor. So it, I think it just comes down to the fact that it, it, it's a comfort thing. Uh, you know, when, when you're in the groove and, and you, you know, that the car's operating in the way you expect it to, then, it, you know, you're going to get something, get something back from it. And clearly uh, Verstappen had a, had a better go of that towards the end of the season than Perez did. Okay. I, I do want to know specifically about Brazil, if you have any ideas, because it seemed like at that one race, I mean, either they just got it wrong, which I guess if you're using that Occam's razor thing would be the simplest explanation. They just, because of the circumstances, got it wrong. But you you looked at the cars carefully. What's your opinion? Like, why did we see them suddenly be that far off the pace at the the only time we've seen them really be that far off the pace? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to remember that Brazil was a sprint race as well. So there's some slightly different things that you might do on in preparation terms. So if you've got things wrong in your preparation towards um, the qualifying, yeah. because you've only got one free practice session ahead of qualifying, then you've kind of boxed yourself into a little bit of a corner because you know you're going in on the back foot, and at that point, then you're in part ferme. So you know that compromises the whole race weekend. So it might just be that they, they, they got something a little bit wrong in terms of their calculations. We do also have to remember that we're towards the end of the season and we're thinking about the uh, the life of components and also the power unit. Uh, so, And we're running at altitude, don't forget, you know, 700 metres above sea level. So there's a lot of factors that, that are put in play there. I just think it was just an off weekend perhaps for them, uh, but it might be indicative of the fact that we were at a sprint race and so the format's a little bit different as well okay um real quickly then and you mentioned this earlier i just want your opinion about the loss the extra loss of testing time and when and where you think it will bite deepest for them because i've seen some people I mean, first of all, nobody really knows. This is this is brand new territory for everybody. So in that sense, I'm kind of excited to see what happens just to see what happens, just so we have some data about it finally. But I've seen it suggested that that realistically, it might not be until the 24 season that we see the major impact of this decision by the FIA. And I was just curious to get your take on it, even though I'll admit up front, we're all guessing because we've never seen this before. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the thing to think about is is that the, the the next year's car has been in process for six months. You know, we, they're not building, they're not starting the design of the twenty twenty three car now because the season has ended. As some people might think, I, I don't know how people think about these things, but 
the 23 car, the RB19, has been in development for about six months, if not longer. And so, you know, you won't really see the, the, this thing hitting them until much later on because they've already made significant progress on next year's car. It will hit them in terms of development because obviously uh, with less wind tunnel and CFD time, they're going to have less ability to develop throughout the course of the season. And as, as we've already mentioned, we're looking at a record-breaking calendar plus additional sprint races for next season. So that means, obviously, you're going to have an issue in terms of developing the car over the course of the season. And when you have the least amount of percentage to CFD and wind tunnel on the grid anyway, because you're the champion, to then take further from them, obviously, is going to have some kind of impact. However, I also do agree that the 24 project will probably be hindered by this problem. And then it becomes a game of how much do you take from one, give to the other. Just as we've seen over the course of many, many, many seasons, you know, how much you prepared to give up on this particular project to be able to get an improvement on the next project. Uh, and I think that's where it might play out. Okay, well, I tell you what, why don't we move on and talk about everybody's favorite comeback kid, Mercedes. And and I have to say, while they didn't exactly pull a rabbit out of the hat, at least it wasn't a dead rat. I mean, they made significant progress on what was obviously a very flawed concept in some ways, and a concept which they were readily admitting was not fixable under these current set of regulations. So, what did they do and how useful is that really going to be for them moving into the next season? So the interesting thing for me here is not the zero pots. There's something else baked into the chassis design that is problematic on the W13. And I think that that is where the story might have been misleading in, in many ways uh, because everybody's focused on the thing that looks the most different to everything else on the grid. I think. Yes, it was problematic because it means that you've got so much flaw that you're trying to stop from moving around and flexing, which obviously was a problem for them in the early stages of the season uh, because they were trying to control weight and all sorts of things. You know, they were fighting all the the ills and problems that everybody else had on the grid as well. Uh, but for me personally, I feel like there's there's probably something a bit deeper seated than just the zero pods. They've managed to turn things around, and in the last few races, we've started to see you know, them claw them, their, themselves back into the pack somewhat. So it does prove that the concept is applicable and can work to some degree. Whether they'll change things going into next season, who knows? I mean, everybody said that their long wheelbase, low rake philosophy couldn't work, yet it worked for five, six, five, six seasons. And, you know, I don't think that uh, everybody else wouldn't want the championships that they currently have. So... Just because something is very different to everybody else on the grid doesn't mean it's the thing that's wrong. Uh, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the, the, the media will play to those things because they're easy to be seen, uh, whereas obviously the story might lie a little bit deeper. Um, in terms of progress, I think Mercedes have had a fantastic season uh, because, you know, as you say, it was a bit of a, a dead duck at the start of the season and it has kind of turned into more of a golden goose towards the end. Yeah, well, this, which gets directly to something I want to ask about, which is we saw them suddenly being much more competitive, not just against Ferrari, but even against Red Bull in these last races. Was that a bit of an illusion? 
because you know Red Bull had obviously an off race at Brazil, or or is this real fundamental progress they've made understanding how better to set up their car and how to extract lap time from it? I personally feel that you have to sort of roll back to Silverstone with Mercedes to see the early offshoots of where they were making their biggest amount of progress, and that's where they introduced a huge and quite significant uh, package of parts and. Most of that centred around the floor, which, as we know, was problematic for them in the early stage of the season. Um, Since then, they've modified the floor further. We've got a lot more detail on the edge of the floor now. Whereas if you look at their first iteration of floor, uh, going back to the pre-season testing, compared to everybody else's, it looked like very, very plain. Um, So they've clearly found performance there. And I think they've found performance there from being able to appreciate what they had done wrong in the first place, but also in being able to find performance by looking at others and how they've approached their designs. Uh, There's a lot of echoes in uh, the design of that area of the car on up and down the grid. You know, everybody's sort of gone in similar directions to try to find performance. Um, One of the key things, which again, Mercedes don't actually have uh, compared to the rest of the grid. So I'm kind of skipping back to Red Bull here slightly but the ice skate solution, which we've talked about in the past, it yeah. was a critical factor in performance for a lot of teams. Ferrari moved to it, Alpine moved to it, Aston moved to it, and so have McLaren tried one in Abu Dhabi as well. So again, something for the future where teams are going to be looking at that, not only in terms of ride height, because that controls ride height in many ways at the rear of the floor, but also what it does aerodynamically to reduce tyre squirt drink if you're playing the bingo. Um, and, you, and if people don't know what that means, it's basically that the the airflow from the rear of the, the car the that moves around the rear tyre is pushed laterally into the diffuser section and it robs it of performance. So effectively, it's squirted across as the tyre deforms. And so the teams try to control that. They had a lot more tools at their disposal to do that under the previous regulations However, over the course of the sort of back end of the season, you really started to see teams try to do things very differently in that respect, and Mercedes being one of them. And I think that's perhaps where they found quite a chunk of performance. Okay, so in talking about that, does that explain the sudden and inexplicable appearance of that veggie slicer at the back of the Mercedes? Uh, that That's actually been there for a while, Matt. I know the picture only really took off. Um, from Brazil, but they've actually had that on the car for quite some time. Um, in regards to that, effectively what that does is allow them to run that winglet at a slightly higher angle of attack because effectively you, you're allowing the airflow to permeate that, that section uh, and obviously alter the, the pressure distribution on both sides. So it's a very interesting solution uh, in as much as that um, I don't think the regulations really cater for it. Uh, it's one of those things where you know it kind of runs on the gray gray area of of what should be and shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, but we are here for that area, are we not? Most certainly. I mean, that's that that's the most exciting part of Formula One for me. It is. It is. So let me ask you this then: If there were a fundamental weakness to the Mercedes that is still painfully obvious in races, it has to be their lack of straight line speed. Do you see that being fixed with whatever fundamental flaw one assumes they will address in next season's car? Uh, I, I think so. I think 
I think personally what their issue revolves around is the way in which the the driver position has a major factor over where you place things like the side impact protection spars and basically it determines many of the measurements up and down the car and red if you look at the red bull cockpit it is much further forward than than, than the mercedes and i think that has a, a major bearing on on certain design uh, constraints and considerations you only have to look at where the lower side impact protection spar is on the Red Bull. It's mounted in the floor, whereas most of the other teams have it up just underneath the side pod. And I think having that flexibility means that you can then interpret your floor design very differently. You can interpret how to change the tunnel entrance and what you do with the you know the the, the fences etc. There as well. And as I was mentioning at the, at the top of this show, the floor is a massive massive factor this year and will be for the the, the you know future seasons and so being able to get more performance there means that you are naturally going to obviously improve compared to your rival so i do think that we'll see a lot of the teams rethinking some of that area of the car okay real quick then you're going to have to define certainly not for me because i know exactly what you're talking about um but for our listeners and viewers when you say tunnel entrances and fences what are you referring to Okay, so when you see the front of the floor, um, the underfloor itself is a is a curved surface. Yeah. It's not flat like we used to have with the old floors. The old floors were pretty much a flat surface until you got the diffuser and then it ramped up at the rear from the diffuser on the kick line and it's uh, around about uh, the rear axle line. However, now that there's a more there's more of a, a shapely effect to the floor itself, uh, because we're working with sort of, you know, underfloor venturis and ground effect um if i'm going to use that term although you know an old style floor is effectively ground effect in many ways um that shape is very different to what we've had in the past and this is where uh, you know we've seen a lot of teams developing different solutions to be able to counter for for the new style of downforce generation in many ways so as i mentioned you've got the the floor that's what I would call the tunnel entrance because you know the the, the airflow goes in under into that tunnel, um, and then obviously the fences stick out from the front of the tunnel as well, and they can alter the the way in which the airflow is moved out and away from the car. Old old term outwash, as we we used to like to call it, or the, what the barge boards used to do effectively. Yeah, it's sort of been interesting trying to track what the teams are using to recreate like the barge boards, as you say, and then and then all of the other fancy bits they used to have on top of the floor to see them try and recreate that with other bits of the car that they're now allowed to use has been, I don't know, it's been a fun journey. Um, well, I, I will just mention that the one thing that I was thoroughly interested with um, in the Silverstone update for Mercedes okay. is the, 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 the bulk that they put in around the suspension bodies on the front suspension, um, they're sh- basically they, they extended the chassis um, in order that it became a, a massive flow diverter, and it effectively pushes the airflow down towards the floor uh, and those tunnel entrances that I've just mentioned. So effectively, they, they, they widened the chassis. It was sort of a faux wide chassis, but it was a flow diverter as well in many ways. So that was something that nobody else did, 
and I think it's primarily because of the way in which that you know it worked for Mercedes with their zero pod setup and the way their floor worked. Okay, well, it worked. It clearly had some positive impact because we saw the performance come on after that update. Uh, I think everyone is kind of curious to see uh, whether they stick with the absolute zero pods because. My personal bet is you're going to see 0.5 pods. They're going to be a little bit bigger to do a little bit more of cleaning of the rear wheel and reducing the floor flex. But I think they're committed to having those teeny tiny things on the car relative to the other teams, personally. Yeah, I mean, they could be quite stubborn in many ways (laughs) uh, because they've spent a huge amount of resource on on something um, to to accomplish that design. I mean, to, to just go into how you accomplish that zero pod is quite interesting uh, in many ways because uh, Mercedes have been on this route since about 2015 where they've basically been excavating the chassis to be able to push their uh, radiators further and further in board. And that is effectively how the, this operates is because they've got a massive chassis cutout behind the driver enable, which enables them to, to push those radiators right the way in. Um, and other teams are doing that now. Red Bull certainly have a similar solution, but not as aggressive as what Mercedes do. Theirs is almost like an X out uh, behind the back of the driver uh, into the chassis, whereas other teams have sort of got a, a notch taken out in, in many ways, much like the earlier interpretation from Mercedes. Okay, so I would be remiss if we didn't get to Ferrari uh, before we run ourselves out of time here, which is only a relative time because. Tech time is forever, and whatever we miss this time, we will catch up with next time. But we've not talked a lot about Ferrari, and I think some of it is reflected in that comment Bonato made, which is like sort of they got to Spa, and he was like, Matt, you know what? I don't think we're going to win, so heck with this. We're going to take our toys and go to 23 already. Is that really what happened? And how important was that technical directive? Because it seemed like it, they just went right off a cliff once that thing came into force. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, Ferrari were the ones that bit the bullet when it came to TDO 39. Uh, they seemed to to take the, the brunt of, of, of that technical directive um, and really did hurt performance. I mean, I did mention this, and I'm not sure whether it was on on Mr. Apex or or where I mentioned it, but essentially my interpretation of the Ferrari at the start of the season was, wow, that looks fast out the box, but can you develop it? Uh, That was my biggest fear, is that that car looked very quick straight out the box, but how are you going to add performance? Uh, Red Bull achieved it, but unfortunately Ferrari didn't. You know, and hate to, you know, throw cold water on the AWS graphics, but they've been saying all season that the Ferrari is the quickest uh, and that the Red Bull is only a few percentage points behind. I mean, I had Red Bull as the quickest from Jeddah onwards, pretty much. Um, they immediately fell off the off the starting blocks and uh, it was difficult for them to get back on. And they always felt, for me, Ferrari always felt as if they were struggling to, to, to gain momentum. Um, they knew what they needed to do, uh, but they simply couldn't get it to work. And that was a number of factors, not just development. They also had a lot of um, incidents on track. They had issues with power units. Um, you know, it, it, it was something that was not one issue. And that is unfortunate in many ways. 
they did have a lot of good development on the car, but again, it was convergence development. They they tended to follow the pathway set out by others because they allowed themselves to look at others' designs and think, oh, that's better than ours. Let's see what it does in the CFD in the wind tunnel. Oh, yeah, it adds a few percentage performance points. Let's let's make a real one and let's put it on the car. We had that with before the season even started because they had the snow player that they pinched from Aston Martin uh, yeah. in pre, you know, when the cars first launched. We then saw them copy McLaren's uh, edge wing solution. We then saw them copy Red Bull's ice skate and, and their edge wing solution. Um, and in terms of their own development, it was just refinements. Yeah. Are you, you know, suggesting they, did, they need Xerox as a sponsor there? Well, you know, we, we did suggest that a certain green team on the grid has made several copies of several cars down the years, and they've done it again this year um, with the, the Red Bull at one stage. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they're devoid of ideas at Ferrari because that's far from it. They came up with a car that, as I say, was very quick out of the blocks. Uh, but I almost think as if they were too reactive to other people rather than actually being insular and thinking of their own interpretations and designs because they'd already done a good job. Um, and then, as you say, I think they got to a certain point where they realised that they needed to turn the tap off because they simply wanted to concentrate on 23 and forsake 22 because they knew they were too far behind. Okay, so I'm going to ask the following question then. Can they reclaim this initiative from Red Bull with the design that they have? Do you see them being able to show up as they did in 22 with a more competitive car, first of all? Yeah, I think so. And I think the biggest difference for next year will come down to the fact that the the resources that Red Bull are going to be restricted by will obviously hamper them in the development race. So if we do end up in a situation where, you know, we see something that is a development that it's not silver bullet, but, you know, everybody wants to head in that direction, I, I think that could hinder Red Bull in some ways because of the re- restrictions they're under. Whereas Ferrari have got a little bit more in pocket uh, for those sort of things. So um, I hope that they come out the blocks in the same way they did in 22. I, I don't think we'll see them copy the Red Bull design you know, because I think they're set in their way with what, what they've put forward this season. They have refined it throughout the course of the season. Those side pods did change, albeit minimally, in terms of the, the radiuses and, and, and whatnot of the, the side pod uh, undercut and, and the rear end. Uh, but I do think that uh, we will see them certainly in the mix next year uh, with Red Bull and, and, and Mercedes and maybe even Alpine and uh, McLaren, hopefully. Oh, let's let's hope that we have that. And the midfield will be featured in our next show, I'm sure. Um, and my last question about Ferrari, uh, before we get to the goodbyes, is very simply, it seemed to me from sort of the forest, not the tree point of view, that they exchanged being competitive in races for being competitive in qualifying. Like they added speed in qualifying, but it cost them the ability to manage the tires at all. And and I wonder, is that more just a balance thing than anything else that they're struggling with? Um, I, I think balance is one of those things, but also the way in which they've added downforce onto the car, uh, uh hindered them as you say in being able to manage the tires and then when td039 dropped i think that hurt them even more uh they were struggling further with tires i mean if we look at 
them versus Mercedes in that respect. They're at two ends of the, the spectrum because Mercedes can't turn the tires on to save their lives yep. um, uh, and basically come into a come into a race and, and don't actually start to fire the tires up for 10 or 12 laps uh, versus Ferrari, who are overcooking the tires almost instantly, um, if you're comparing apples for apples in those two. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that was a major factor for them uh, in their approach to strategy uh, because obviously you you're trying your best to provide the best strategy possible for the driver but if you can't make that strategy work because the tires are overheating then you've got a bit of a major problem on your hands because then the stint lives don't work i mean i hate to say it, but sometimes i think perhaps formula one is or formula one strategists and you know i, I i'm not in that pay pay packet range but it almost appears sometimes that a two-stop might outweigh a one-stop uh, because you can actually drive the nuts off the thing for as many laps as you need to um, and take the extra stop. And I know teams will always try to do less stops because there's less problems that can go wrong. But we all know from the Schumacher era that if you can make a, an extra stop work in lap time differences, you can make it work. And I think sometimes... Ferrari might, might have been better off trying to play that game. Yes. Well, in order to do that, you have to have the driver who can drive at that percentage of the maximum pace without mistakes, as we saw in the last race with Red Bull on the two-stop versus Ferrari on the one-stop. Yeah. I mean, that, that, the problem there was the traffic, um, that, that Perez had the issue there. In my opinion, that was one of the big factors behind him not being able to to claim the positions that he needed to um but he nearly made it work nearly made it work it was suboptimal but it was the only way realistically of doing what he needed to do with the tires yep. at the point that he had them yep no it, it all he got put into a box because his tires went off by lap 15 and the clerks had not and that yep. that informed everything summers will you come back and talk to us again about more of this stuff of course I will. I love these chats, Matt. Ah, I do too. So I'm delighted to hear you say that. In the meantime, where should people look for you on what we like to call the social medias? <laughs> well, if it still exists in a, in a few days' time, obviously the best place is Twitter, uh, which is Summers F1. But I am now on Mastodon as well, and you can find me on Instagram, although I will warn you that I post a lot of golf content on that stream. And we golfers are here for that content, let me tell you. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the interwebs. Come find me on Twitter. Send me an email at matt at mistapex.net. And until next time, this has been Missed Apex Podcast. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.